If you showed up this morning expecting to see Brian, I'm sorry. Um, Brian got the COVID, and he's, I understand he's improving. And Brian, if you're watching, uh, you're going to be missed. But I appreciate the opportunity to talk, uh, especially about this subject. We're in Luke chapter 14. It's really interesting. Um, The Jews have this long, long history in festivals. They had seven that are mandated by Scripture. Uh, The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, each one of those feasts have um, very symbolic, not only in and of themselves, but even the, the little pieces that make up each of those meals has great symbolism, all for memory, all for remembering. And so in a little while, we're going to celebrate Passover. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And by the way, those of you who will be serving, I'll let you know when you can get up. So don't sit there nervously all morning worried about that. Unless, of course, I forget. Uh, But the Passover itself had little pieces of it that were so meaningful to recall uh, things that were important in the Jewish life. This weekend is Memorial Day weekend. We remember those who have served in the armed forces and we appreciate uh, what they've done. And so thank you. For those of you who've served, I know there's some of you here, thank you so much. But today we're going to remember some other things. We're going to walk through Luke in chapter 14 and see a study in discipleship. Uh, Three points to the sermon, and I'm telling you all that so you'll know when we're almost through. Um, uh, First is, uh, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you can almost expect criticism. Number two, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus... You have to be humble. And finally, there's a cost to pay. We start out in Luke 14 looking at Jesus attending a feast. And in that feast, he uses two parables of feasts to make his point, which I think is interesting. Let's start just by reading the text, Luke chapter 14. And by the way, uh, I was looking at N.T. Wright's study guide And uh, he makes the point that if Luke's vision of the Christian life from one viewpoint is a journey, from another point he views it as a party. And that's true because he mentions feasts over and over again. Uh, We see it in chapter 15, the feast after the prodigal son returns home. We see it in the Last Supper when Jesus eagerly desired to share Passover with his disciples. And then we see uh, the supper after the walk on the road to Emmaus, full of imagery. Uh, and this is no different. Mark was, Mark was writing to um, folks about 40 years after Jesus had, had passed and been risen. And he, I'm, I'm trying to put myself into his shoes being a Gentile, trying to get his arms around uh, Judaism. Uh, and, and so there's a lot to be learned from that perspective in Mark's view 
Let's read the text. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Now this is a great segue from Brad's lesson last week when he talked about In Luke chapter 13, when Jesus did stuff on the Sabbath that uh, he healed on the Sabbath when he wasn't supposed to, and he was rebuked for that. He said, we have six days to work. What's interesting here, they don't say anything. One of the reasons, perhaps, is because uh, everyone liked what Jesus was doing. The lesson to be learned here is if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you will be carefully watched now we don't see a direct criticism here because they don't speak but they were carefully watching and why to see if Jesus messed up to see if they would have something to accuse him of and they were in a dilemma because the people wanted to see what Jesus was doing the commoner if you will because really these feasts are given by wealthy people And as we're going to see later on, they're given by wealthy people for wealthy people uh, for all kinds of reasons. But we do know, and and let's ask this question, why was Jesus even invited? Uh, I wouldn't think he would be very popular at Pharisee dinners because he usually rebuked them. But he got invited to this one. Now, we can speculate about that. We know that it was a prominent Pharisee that invited him, and probably because Jesus was popular. Uh, If you think about it, he was a rabbi who had a very large following in a very short period of time. So he was probably prominent uh, in their view, and so he was a good guest to invite. Or they may just be simply keeping their enemies close to their side so they know what they're doing. I'm not certain why he was there, but he certainly took the opportunity uh, to do a little preaching while he was there. Um... And I I think the takeaway from this is, and I think chapter 13 says the same thing. And I want you guys to, I want this to sink in. I want you to think about this. It's never wrong to do something good. Never, under any circumstance, is it ever wrong to do something good. Um... As Peter remarked in 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Next, discipleship emulates humility. And we have some very, very practical examples here of how to be humble. Uh, And that's always an interesting example. interesting study I always like to tell people that I'm very proud to be humble Uh, I'll tell you a story you know 
bless our hearts, uh, we all sort of think we're the center of the world. And everything revolves around us. And so I'll tell you guys this interesting story. I, I, I grew up, when Mother and Dad first moved here, I went to South Lawn Church of Christ. And there was this guy with this huge booming voice uh, by the name of Everett Blanton. And I got to know him. He was a deacon at the time. And he had a son. He had two kids. He may have had more. He had more than that. But I knew two of them well, Pat and Mike. Um, and we were friends. We played together. I went to his house. He came over to my, Pat and Mike both. They were about two or three years apart, but I were both my friends. And, <clears throat> and then Mike, if you guys probably know this, Mike went off and became Amy Grant's manager and uh, is, is well-established in Nashville as, as a, a, a manager. Uh, they came back for Everett's uh, funeral, and I had been so excited to see Mike, and I'd always thought about Mike. Uh, and so I reintroduced myself to Mike. He didn't know who I was from Adam. <laughs> now, can you imagine how disappointing that was to me? Because he was on my mind all the time. He hadn't thought of me since I left South Lawn and moved over to Bell Avenue, I don't think. Disappointment. But humility is, is learned uh, we either learn it from God or we learn it from life experiences. But here are some very practical things about humility. First, don't honor yourself. And let's read the text beginning at verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked their places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, N.T. Wright asked the question, is this just good social advice? Well, it may be good social advice, but I don't think that's where Jesus was going with it. Uh, because Jesus himself emulated the perfect picture of humility. And I'm, I'm thinking about Philippians 2, 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Um, so, be willing to give up your place. Be willing to be last, or at least second. But don't honor yourself. Next, humility does not expect to be repaid. Verse 12 of Luke 14. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. 
If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. Humility requires selflessness. Uh, It requires us to embrace those on the margin of society. It requires us um, to have expectations for the future. Now, that's that's for another sermon. And for those of you who've been in my All Things New class, you know where I'm going, but I won't go there. I want to tell you a story. Brad Brad, Brad and Karen, of course, have been faithful, faithful servants uh, for so long in dealing with kids with special needs and adults with kids with special needs. And I remember years ago, I learned what it meant to do something and expect not to be repaid. They had a respite program for parents with special needs kids, and we would do that on a Saturday afternoon from about noon till about 4 or 5. We would spend time with special needs kids while their parents got a break. It was uh, a life-changing experience for me, and I remember so well. There were three children, ages, I don't know what their ages were. It could have been from 15 to 20, probably not that old, who were confined to wheelchairs, who were confined to being fed with a G-tube, who could not respond, who could not talk, uh, who might be able to blink an eye, but who just were just profoundly disabled. And I remember learning how and taking them out of their wheelchair, laying them on a mat to change their diapers. And... I thought to myself, the parents that take care of these kids love without expecting to be paid. Uh, And it was as close as that I've felt to doing something truly with no uh, expectation of receiving anything here. Beautiful story. Then the next point, humility requires inclusivity and not exclusivity. And that brings us to verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Now this is a very special thing and I could see a Gentile latching onto this because these are code words that are being used here. Here is, here is a member of, of, the, of the feast party, if you will, who sort of yells out this uh, beatitude, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now he's talking about uh, after judgment. He's talking about the feast that we see in Revelation uh, chapter 19. The grand feast, the great party, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Now, we know who this is. This is God, and we know who he's inviting. Uh, He's inviting Abraham's lineage, Abraham's family. Um, At the time 
the bank, at, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Let me break right here. As I understand it, you'd get your, if you were on the list and you got invited to a prominent Pharisee's dinner party, you would get that invitation long before the party was ever supposed to go forward. And then the, the guest, the, excuse me, the host would send out one of his servants to let you know when it was ready, when it was time to come. And so in this case, that's what's exactly happened. And, the, and uh, the servant goes out and says, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike. Now, these are the ones that were invited first. These are the prominent people. These are the religious people. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them. Uh, Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. And, and so I think we see pretty quickly that these excuses are lame. I don't know a feller who would buy a piece of land without seeing it or would get him five yoke of oxen, that's ten, without knowing whether they would work. And then the guy who just got married is referring to Deuteronomy, a passage in Deuteronomy, I think 24, where if, when you got married, fellas... If you were a Hebrew, you got to take a year off uh, so that you could devote yourself to your wife. And he was using that as an excuse to say no to the invitation that he had already accepted. And here's the reaction. Um, The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now, these were Jews too, but these weren't the prominent religious ones. And what was their response? Well, they came, but the house wasn't yet full. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads, country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full I tell you not one of those who were invited will get the taste of my banquet Um, three groups invited prominent religious Jews those who weren't who were poor who were lame who were blind and finally that last group are the Gentiles Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with that parable, explaining to that one who said, don't expect to be there. That expectation was well uh, inbred, if you will, from Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine. And it's sort of reminiscent of what Jesus said in Luke 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. For those of you who are going to serve the Lord's Supper, if you would, take your places. So there's this Jewish expectation of a great feast that's uh, in Scripture 
for their anticipation. The Lord's Supper is part of that. The Lord's Supper looks back as a tool to remember what has been done for us. And it looks forward to that time when Jesus returns. And rather than think so much of Jesus right now, I want to think of us as disciples and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, we've looked at how to be humble, at least three aspects of that. We know we need to be um, not concerned about potential criticism. We have to brave that storm. But as disciples, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. We have taken his place here on this earth. And he promised his disciples that they would do greater things than he did. Greater things than he did. So think of yourself. Think of your commitment as we drink this wine, as we eat this bread. Not in that order, of course. That's the Luke order. Let's pray. Father, as we see the words of your son, as we see the kind of world that he envisioned, of kingdom in his heart, help us, Father, as his disciples to take on that kingdom. Let your will be done, Father. And let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for this bread. This bread, just like Jewish feast, that is so symbolic and so meaningful about the body of Jesus. And as we take it, Father, let us discern the body of Jesus Christ, risen. And it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. Holy Father, as we take this wine, let us discern the blood of Jesus. The blood that was shed for us so that we can have eternal life. And Father, we know we are saved by your grace and not by anything that we do. Thank you, dear God, for that. But Father, will you create in us a desire to want to be the kind of people that live such good lives and doing good, bringing honor and glory to you that those around us have no complaint, that those around us see you living in us, those around us see Jesus living in us. Please, Father, would you grant us that in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now here comes the hard part. Jesus uh, spent most of that chapter 
critiquing the Pharisees around him and sharing not only with the Pharisees what he thought discipleship should be, but shared with everyone else that was there as well. But now, he's no longer in the feast. Now he's walking along with the crowds. Verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, Such a person cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then he urges uh, them to count the cost of following me. So let's get this picture. And, uh, you know, it's been portrayed a lot of different ways, but every time I think of Jesus walking around, Uh, like on the Sermon on the Mount. He's got his close disciples with him, but then he's got this large crowd as well. And you you can imagine why a large crowd would follow Jesus. He's fed them when they were hungry. He's cured them uh, when they were ill. He has done miraculous things. And I suspect there were a bunch in that crowd waiting for that very thing to happen to them. Jesus will heal me. Jesus will feed me. And Jesus is saying something to them that's a little different than that. He's saying, wait a second. You're going to suffer the way I've suffered if you want to follow me. There's a cost to be paid. And then he goes on. Uh, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king, won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. You have to ask yourself the question uh, when Jesus said, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and yet I have to give up everything. I have to hate my mother, my father, my children. Well, Jesus doesn't literally mean hate there. He just means you will have to make choices in your life. Now, for us, those choices don't always seem so apparent to us. But if you're from the Middle East and you come from an Islamic heritage and you find Jesus, then you have just left your mother, your father, your children your grandparents, your aunt and uncle. So you have to ask yourself the question. And so I'd ask, before I do that, I'd ask our ministers and elders to get up and circulate around. And I want you to know that we are here uh, to give you a prayer, to give you a touch, 
to let you know that we are walking alongside you. You know, we, we stopped the practice years ago of having people come down front. I think we had better luck getting people to come down front than we have people going to the sides and the back. But I want you to know we're sincere about this. We want to pray with you. And if something's been said this morning about discipleship that has touched your heart, ask any of us and we'll pray with you. We, we want to do that. So, how do you give up everything? How do you give up everything? Does it mean Jesus wants us to live in poverty? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. Because if being wealthy is a distraction to you in being a disciple, then you are better off living in poverty. If eating is more important to you and a distraction in following Jesus, and some might argue that's my problem, then you're better off to be hungry. Because the life that is to come is something we cannot even imagine. And it will make our trials and tribulations here seem so trivial and so unimportant. Oh, if we only believed that. If we only lived like we believed that, we would be a different people. We would truly be Jesus. We would truly be his hands and feet. But God's grace makes up the difference. So don't leave this place feeling guilty. Please don't do that. Remember, it's a journey, and we are walking that journey, and we're all getting more like Jesus every day. Bless you. Thank you so much. If you want to talk to any of us, please come forward while we stand and sing.